0: and right now it's the best price of the year at $29 go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29 that's s y l v a n 29.com
1: in the summer of 2020 all across america people took to the streets The Black Lives Matter protests for racial justice might have been the largest social movement in American history. But there was a backlash
2: their intentions are to tear down the fabric of America. They're insisting these are mostly peaceful protests, even
1: though there are billions of dollars in damage. No matter what they tell you, it has very little to do with black lives. When the National Guard is called in, I believe you could start to call that a riot. Well, see,
2: Black Lives Matter is not a civil rights movement.
1: When people fought for racial justice in the 1960s, there was also a backlash.
0: They want more freedom, I guess, and uh, more advantages. But they shouldn't show it in this
2: way. Don't they're acting like animals.
0: Well, I think if they remain peaceful, it would be a lot better than perhaps the violence that would be concerned. I think they're just asking for trouble. They should have stayed where they belong. I just think we ought to have open season on all of them.
1: But now we call that the Civil Rights Movement. So when our history is written, How will the unrest of the past couple of years be remembered? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Peniel Joseph. He's an historian at the University of Texas at Austin, who's written a number of books on race and democracy in America. His new book is called The Third Reconstruction, and it has a pretty provocative thesis. Joseph says that there was not one, but three distinct periods of reconstruction in America. And by this, he just means periods of time where there's a meaningful step toward multiracial democracy. First was the one you probably think about when you hear the word reconstruction. It began in 1865 with the abolition of slavery. And that ended, Joseph says, in 1898 with a white supremacist insurrection in Wilmington, North Carolina. The second began in 1954 with Brown versus Board of Education. And it ended in 1968 when MLK was assassinated. And the third? Joseph says we're living in it right now. And it started with this.
2: Protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help you God. Uh, so help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President.
1: The election of Barack Obama in 2008. What's at the heart of all this for Joseph is that he sees America as having a dual identity. And American history can be understood as the struggle between these two forces,
2: the Reconstructionists and the Redemptionists. The Reconstructionists are supporters of multiracial democracy, but that definition is deceptive because supporters of multiracial democracy are interested in expansive intersectional justice before we use the word intersectional. So that means Black, queer, white, Latinx, AAPI, indigenous, immigrants, disabled. Before we use Kimberly Crenshaw's brilliant word, intersectionalism, and she built that on the struggles and the work of Black feminists in the 19th and 20th centuries, we had Reconstructionists. And what Reconstructionists wanted was citizenship and dignity. Yes, for Black people, but by providing citizenship and dignity for Black people, it was gonna reverberate to all people, including, I would add, working-class whites and poor whites would have a better life, right? So when you think about supporters of multiracial democracy, that's deceptive because that doesn't sound like a revolution, but it is a revolution. (laughs) So when you support multiracial democracy, everybody counts, right? And I love the idea of either everybody counts or no one counts. And redemptionists, in contrast, are supporters of the lost cause slash white supremacy. And I say that, Sean, on purpose because the lost cause for me is even bigger than white supremacy because the lost cause is a narrative that, yes, it's infused and anchored in white supremacy, but it's bigger than that because it provides a narrative Style and rhetoric that talks about tradition, that talks about family, that talks about God and church. A lot of code. It talks about code, but these are things that lost causers believe in as well. It's just that they believe in it only for themselves. They don't believe in it for that capacious, panoramic, multiracial group. And lost causers, the reason why I say the lost cause is bigger than white supremacy is that. A lot of folks who are connected to the lost cause do not perceive of themselves as white supremacists or racists. They perceive of themselves as good, God-fearing people who respect authority, are loyal to their own specific vision of America, and are really connected to purity, too. They believe in the fundamental moral goodness of these Confederate traditions, these antebellum traditions, a segregationist America. And what's so interesting about this Reconstructionist versus Redemptionist, the Lost Cause says it's redeeming the South through violence. It's redeeming the South by protecting white women against black men who are alleged to be violent sexual predators. It's redeeming the South through lynching and segregation and convict leasing and sharecropping and peonage because black people learn a kind of piety through being exploited in terms of labor. And why did you feel like the best way to
1: tell this story of the past century and a half was to tell it in terms of this dichotomy, as opposed to a series of zigs and zags along that famous moral arc bending toward justice?
2: You know, the older I get, and I've been doing this for a while, both as a professional historian, I just turned 50. And just as an activist, you know, I'm my mother's son, Jermaine Joseph. I write about her in the book. I'm the proud son of Haitian immigrants. I was on my first picket line, Sean, in elementary school. So my connection to social movements goes back to over 40 years, even though I'm only 50, only because of the background. I grew up in New York City, Queens Village, New York, but also Mount Sinai Hospital, East 91st, East 92nd Street. I grew up in a very interesting social milieu that was all black in queens but in manhattan it was multiracial and we had jewish friends and italian friends and eastern european friends and coworkers african caribbean puerto rican dominican like that so it was very unusual i learned <laughs> for me i thought this was how you know things in the world <laughs> worked and so what i've come to see is that stories matter the most. And here's what I mean. The first story we're given, Sean, is the story of us, how our parents got together, how we were born. Sometimes, and I remember this as a kid, I received stories about like what happened the day I was born, how my mom was feeling when I came right out the womb, how bad labor was. Received stories about Haiti, my dad, my mom, so the first stories are familial stories. The second story we get, which is a really powerful story as well, is the story of the United States or whatever country we're coming from and how we came to the United States. And so I've come to see that stories are the most important aspect of our lives, whether they're true or not, whether they're partially true, whether they mix up fact and fiction and supposition. They come to define who we are and create the policies, the structures, the institutions, systems of justice and injustice, and how we rationalize everything. Yeah. So I thought when I looked at the history really with fresh eyes, starting really in the 2010s, I really was really looking at Reconstruction with fresh eyes over the last 10-15 years, and certainly the Trump election made me think about it and study it even deeper. I thought that, you know, we are really fundamentally sharing two stories about the country with various groups over the last hundred and fifty years. And one of those stories was a reconstructionist story that gets tweaked over time, Sean, to include more people over time. And the other story that was consistent was the redemptionist story. And I think that to understand 2020, to understand 2022, to understand where we're at, Barack Obama, we need to understand fundamentally that these are reconstructionist versus redemptionist stories.
1: Yeah. And part of the problem you're laying out in this book is the history of redemptionism is in many ways the history of finding new ways to reinforce and paper over these founding injustices. For instance, we have the colorblind models you talk about that sprung up in the first Reconstruction era. There's the separate but equal approach of the Jim Crow South. And one question I kept asking myself is Is the idea of American exceptionalism for you just another manifestation of? Redemptionism, And maybe it'll help to just say briefly what American exceptionalism is.
2: Well, American exceptionalism is really the story America tells itself about its founding origins and its contemporary resonance and relevance. So when we think about American exceptionalism, the themes usually are themes of forward progress, democratic progress, economic progress— But also, especially starting in 19, I argue, 63, during the second Reconstruction, also themes of racial progress. I would also add, during the second Reconstruction, we get themes of gender progress. We get themes of LGBTQIA plus progress. So when we think about American exceptionalism, it's this idea that America is that shining city on the hill, is liberty's surest guardian, and we've been sort of endowed and protected by God himself, because God is always a he, always a he, and this kind of manifest destiny, right? So we are imperfect, but we are on a constant, relentless quest to perfect our union. And like President-elect Obama says on his victory night, that America is a place where all things are possible. That's what we mean by American exceptionalism. I also might add American exceptionalism also makes the argument that anyone from any place can succeed here. So, in a lot of ways, when we think about redemptionism and reconstructionism, both of those ideas become parts of American exceptionalism between 1865 and the present. I would argue that redemptionism takes hold of American exceptionalism in the first century after the Civil War. American exceptionalism is this sort of imperialist empire. It marginalizes people of color, certainly marginalizes Black people. And I would argue that what the second Reconstruction does is allow Black people and brown people and people of color and women in a more capacious way to make claims to American exceptionalism for both good and bad. (laughs) And
1: this is something I genuinely wonder if it's possible to be an American exceptionalist without also being a redemptionist. You know, so we have people like Ron DeSantis, He's the governor of Florida. He's very aggressively, very obviously running for president. And he's given a stump speech just the other day. And he says it was the American Revolution that caused people to question slavery.
2: slavery. No one had questioned it before we decided as Americans that we are endowed by our creator with unalienable rights and that we are all created equal, then
1: that birth abolition movements. So you can't teach history that's being used to pursue an ideological agenda. Now, I think you and I both know what he's doing there. We know who he's talking to. We know that claim is bullshit. But I struggle to know where to draw the lines when it comes to telling our history. And I'll tell you what I mean. You know, as you say in the book, History is a series of stories we tell ourselves. It doesn't matter who's telling it. It doesn't matter what their agenda is. And so, in that sense, you can't really remove ideology from history. It's just baked into it because it's human beings doing the telling. Mm-hmm. So, if you're not DeSantis, if you're a good faith citizen, a patriotic citizen, and you want to believe the best about your country, you want to tell the most charitable story possible about your country. And maybe you look around the world and you notice how universal racism and all these other problems are, how universal they've always been. And maybe you say, well, America is flawed like everyone else, but it's a hell of an experiment. Maybe the greatest experiment in multiracial democracy ever and its history for all its fits and starts is still a steady, though violent and bumpy march towards more equality. Can someone believe that without also Denying or minimizing all the injustice and all the racial oppression, or without also being complicit in the efforts of others to just straight up go backwards.
2: You know, what I would say to that, Sean, is that all those things you can hold to be true and still have a critical understanding of American history. And I would also push back against the idea that progress is linear. I think in certain historical contexts, In the past, we have more freedoms, Roe versus Wade, voting rights, than we do right now in 2022. So I think that we have to tell a more complicated story. And I think the pride we should have in being American is the pride of people who are fighting the abolitionist struggle. I talk about W.E.B. Du Bois in this book. Mm -hmm. And Du Bois is really, really important because his book, Black Reconstruction in 1935, really upends this racist redemptionist history of the lost cause that has truly become american history by the 1930s with gone with the wind and birth of a nation and the dunning school william archibald dunning the columbia university historian who literally writes the textbooks that john f kennedy and other people are reading at harvard and k through 12 about how reconstruction was a failure slavery was nice black people were happy and smiling mint tea and jubilees. And so we can tell the story of America that talks about white abolitionists who believed in Black citizenship and dignity. We could tell the story of America that talks about multiracial efforts to stop the dispossession of Indigenous people in the United States. We could tell the story of working class and labor movements that fought for eight-hour days and environmental justice and not having 10-year-olds in coal mines and die in, you know, shirtwaist factories (laughs) in Greenwich Village in the early 20th century. We can tell that story. And I think that the fuller picture allows us to actually be more proud of both what we've achieved and what we haven't against, at times, really insurmountable odds. So we could talk about Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall. We could talk about all of that together, but I don't think that we should take democratic progress for granted as something that is linear, that each and every year gets better and better. And, you know, I push back against this idea that the only way we can have a civic nationalism in support of America is through American exceptionalism. I think we need to move beyond American exceptionalism in a way that really goes back to our Reconstructionist roots. Because even this notion of abolition democracy that Du Bois coins for what happened during Reconstruction, what he means by abolition democracy was that Reconstruction held out the promise of liberation not just for Black people. It held out the promise of liberation for all Americans, including perhaps especially white people. Liberation from bonds of injustice, but also liberations from narratives of American exceptionalism that allowed so much of the white populace to endure and accept Economic injustice and mistreatment of all kinds, right? Du Bois called it the public and psychological wages of whiteness, right? But the public and psychological wages of whiteness that he talks about really fit squarely in that story of the lost cause in the Redeemer South and redemptionism that is mixed in with religion, culture, and tradition yeah. in a way that's almost imperceptible. And that's why I wanted to write the book. You have this line in the book, uh, a couple of lines that, boy, it,
1: <laughs> it really packs a punch and it's really tight, you know. And you say that American exceptionalism rests on two big lies. The first is that Black people aren't human beings. And the second is that that never happened. For me, I, it's like I wonder, that's definitely true of a certain expression of American exceptionalism. I just don't know if I can settle on that fixed conception of it. I mean, is America exceptional in any meaningful sense? I guess, maybe. I, I mean, I do think it's a historically unique political experiment, but it's certainly not exceptional in the sense that it's innocent or untainted by various crimes or founded in blood. Mm-hmm. But I guess I want to think, I do think that you can believe in some version, maybe, of American exceptionalism without denying these truths.
2: I think you can believe in a version of American democracy that you feel proud of. yeah and a history of american democracy that has tried to right ancient wrongs and continues to do so both domestically and internationally yes but i think we have to go beyond american exceptionalism even when it's told to us in a way that sounds great and gratifying and that's where i use i juxtapose obama's vision of american exceptionalism with black lives matter the blm movement's vision of human dignity mhm And how they are at loggerheads at times. Because, again, sewn into Obama's vision of American exceptionalism is what I call a redemptionist drift, Mm -hmm. where there's the politics of respectability, where Black people have to behave in certain ways, or immigrants or women have to behave in certain ways to gain access to it. The only way to gain access to it is a kind of racial or gendered innocence. And even then, you're still having to subscribe to a neoliberal politics where it's always top down, right? Where we're always expecting the access we get to come from foundations or venture capitalists who, Sean, have taken and privatized and militarized and exploited once public spaces. Right, And then they deign to say, well, we can go to the parks that Theodore Roosevelt saved for us for this fee during this time. Or the billionaires who own public beaches. So when we think about American exceptionalism, there's too much, I think, that is morally and politically tainted within it. To salvage. But when you think about traditions of American democracy, especially abolition democracy, we have a huge multiracial history of that. So we're talking about Dolores Huerta's. We are talking about Susan B. Anthony. We are talking about Ida B. Wells and the Frederick Douglasses. And yes, we're talking about Abraham Lincoln. So it's a big tent. I say it in the book Reconstructionists. Just like redemptionists, they have a left, a center, and a right wing of Reconstruction. So when we think about American democracy, so does that. So Lincoln doesn't go as far as Frederick Douglass, but do I include Lincoln in terms of the Reconstructionists? Absolutely, I include him. That can piss people off, and that's fine, you know? So it's not going to be just your favorites can be Reconstructionists, you know? You get to pick.
1: We've got to take a short break, but when we come back, I'll ask Joseph to dive a little deeper into his criticism of Barack Obama's presidency.
3: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
1: I wanted to get to Obama and screw it. Let's just go there because you brought him up. And he's such an interesting character in the story you're telling. And I love it because I find his presidency and the debates about his role and historical status just endlessly fascinating. And, you know, I think it's fair to say you're pretty critical of him. A lot of people are, even on the left, or particularly on the left. And maybe the best way to kind of set this up is to contrast Obama with BLM, which you do in the book. And you write that Obama's reading of American history made him a mainstream Reconstructionist. Yeah. In every instance of racial progress, he saw the further perfection of the nation's democratic experiment. But Black Lives Matter on your view offered a more radical brand of reconstructionism. So what do you think was wrong with Obama's way of telling America's story and how did BLM come along and
2: transcend it or correct it? You know, one thing I would start by saying, Sean, is that I'm a huge admirer of President Obama. And I think that comes across in the book too. I was very impressed. The enormity of what Obama represented in victory, I talk about and describe. The psychological lift that he gave for Black people in the entire world, really, is really indelible. And to have gone to those rallies, I got to go to the DNC, to have been connected to that is really quite powerful. And I say that. Mm-hmm. So the idea that somehow Obama is just symbolism or he's some kind of fraud is not a view. That I subscribe to. So I'm one of the people who are critics of Obama and also express deep admiration for Obama, including the story he tried to tell. And I even say in the book, for a time, I wanted to believe the story he's trying to tell. So in certain ways, Obama sort of papers over our deep divisions with really grand, soaring rhetoric. He leads us towards this civic nationalism, 2004, July 27th, at the DNC in Boston. There are no red states, there are no blue states. We're the United States of America. He says, My presence on this stage is pretty unlikely. My father was a foreign student, born and raised in a small village in Kenya. My father met my mother. She was born in a town on the other side of the world, in Kansas. The day after Pearl Harbor, my grandfather signed up for duty, joined Patton's army, marched across Europe. I stand here knowing that my story is part of the larger American story, that in no other country on earth is my story even possible. This unique blending of American culture and hybridity, melting pot. E pluribus unum, you know, out of many one. I mean, this is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. So I think that there was a lot of good in what Obama was trying to do and call us towards our better angels and this kind of American identity that was capacious enough to include uh, multiracial democracy. So he absolutely is a Reconstructionist. Where I fault Obama is for not understanding and appreciating what I characterize as the lower frequencies of American democracy, Mm. where people who are incarcerated, people who are impoverished, people who are segregated, people who are experiencing violence daily are also part of this story, but not Obama's story. It was almost as if we had overcome all of that. And if we had, I would be fine with that. I, As a historian, one of the things I always tell people is that if we ended racism and we ended oppression, I'm still not out of business because I can write books about how we did it. Yeah. So I think Black Lives Matter, in comparison, understood that if Obama represented a new kind of citizenship, because for the first time in world history, in terms of the modern world history, yeah. there was a black face who represented American citizenship. BLM understood that there were tens and millions of Black people, but I also might add, because BLM is really a Reconstructionist, radical Reconstructionist movement. They really care about people of color, including poor white people, and white people who are being marginalized, white people who are imprisoned, white people who are disabled, right? Alongside of Black and people of color. So when you read their policy analysis, it's there. Everybody's in it. BLM understood that we all have human dignity, even if states and countries and external institutions don't recognize that human dignity. And that's why I love the scene in the book where Obama is in the Oval Office and there are seven BLM activists there. And he's telling them about incremental change and slow-paced change. And Brittany Packnett tells them that the first time she was ever tear-gassed was on the streets of Ferguson, and he's talking about slow change. So what's so interesting is that BLM, really more than the president, makes an argument that the fundamental beating heart of American democracy is human dignity. And until we get to human dignity, the fact that we have A Black man as president is not an exemplar of American democracy and greatness. That's morally profound. And they also challenge him showing he loved John Lewis. I love John Lewis. I got a chance to meet Congressman John Lewis, former chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, before he passed away a couple of years ago, keynoter at the March on Washington. But Obama didn't love BLM. They're doing the same thing. But he loved John Lewis cuz it was easy to love John Lewis. John Lewis had become an American saint. Yeah. John Meacham says he's an American saint. So what I love about BLM is the courage, right? Before it becomes popular to say this is the right thing to do. And that's the courage that John Lewis had. Not Barack Obama, but John Lewis cuz John Lewis is getting his head bashed in as a freedom rider. On the Edmund Pettus Bridge, when you look at the polling data in in 1961 and 63, the majority of Americans don't believe in what John Lewis is getting victimized for and getting beaten for, right? But by the time Obama is saying he loves John Lewis, the majority of Americans have imbibed a different story. And they say, yes, John Lewis, Dr. King, nonviolence, the majority says they were good people. They were patriotic actors. So... BLM is doing the same thing before the PR, before 2020, before a majority of whites say, I understand what they're doing.
1: I mean, a lot of this, what you end up having is a lot of people, a lot of actors, a lot of projects that basically share the same aims. And it comes down to the means to get there and what's wisest and what's not. And so much of this with Obama turns on this prism through which you... Understand his behavior, right? I mean, you can see him as placating the redemptionist forces that still exist in the country, or Mm -hmm. you can see him doing his best to galvanize the country in ways that he believes will make more and better reforms possible. There are these reactionary forces in the country. And if you're Obama, who's a really smart guy, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: maybe you're saying to yourself, well, maybe it's politically necessary to neutralize these forces as opposed to galvanizing them. But then I guess you could say his mere existence was going to galvanize them no matter what he did,
2: you know? Absolutely. And the interesting part, Sean, is that he doesn't confront the racial divide until much later into his presidency. But by that point, the Democrats have lost the House of Representatives in 2010. They've lost the Senate, which prevents them from gaining a Supreme Court justice in Merrick Garland. And the massive backlash that he tried so hard to tiptoe around... We see what happened with Reverend Clementa Pinckney and Dylan Ruth, and we also see the rise of MAGA and Trump. And that's why I push back against American exceptionalism, even as practiced by Reconstructionists, because it always forces us into lies and evasion, and the backlash, the evil that we're trying to resist, erupts anyway. What's interesting is that Obama, certain ways, people talked about him as Reagan or Eisenhower... He is seeking to be a consensus president. But white supremacy and the lost cause really prevents that consensus from congealing. So what it means is that at the end of the day, we have to confront these narratives. And so I think Obama, when he met with the activists in Black Lives Matter 2014 in December, he could have never imagined a Donald Trump presidency. And I say it's to the credit of the BLM activist's in that room, that they could. <laughs> so, who are the realists there? Who are the people who are more pragmatic? The president, who's so surprised at Donald Trump. He can't believe it! Or is it the BLM activists who are telling him, look, this is what the police are doing. This is what this country is doing. confronted be our champion, be a savior for American democracy, right? Yet the president is so surprised about MAGA, his administration. And they talk about it. When Trump is elected, they're crying. They're in tears. They can't believe it. But guess what? BLM was the canary in the coal mine. We were getting the warnings. Ferguson, Baltimore, right? We were getting this way before Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Those folks could have been saved. And that's what I want people to confront, including Obama. And I say this as somebody who admires him.
1: All right. Now I feel like I got to cape up for Obama here just for a second, (laughs) because I am frustrated too. I mean, I'm honestly torn when it comes to this, because on the one hand, I mean, I, I share your personal admiration for the man. I mean, just as a man, the intelligence, his temperament, he's just really a model in almost every respect. And on the one hand, I understand the frustrations That a lot of people have myself included sometimes with his moderation and it's the role of activists to constantly push and move that overton window in their direction but damn you know when you're actually in the arena of liberal democratic politics when you're a legislator trying to build coalitions and get stuff done that decision calculus is so tricky Mm -hmm. there are all these trade-offs and i think obama would say if he was anything he was pragmatic maybe to a fault but he was pragmatic in the sense that he was trying to do the best he could to get as much done as possible, knowing there were going to be constraints and there was going to be blowback. And it's a very difficult terrain to navigate.
2: You know what I mean? Yeah, but I think there are mistakes. We should have taken over the banks. They left $400 billion in troubled asset relief funds that could have helped white and black and Latinx and API mortgage owners get out from under while the big financial interests got out from under.
1: That was one of my many frustrations,
2: yeah. Nobody was prosecuted. We could have done student loan forgiveness then. We could have done so much more to help people than that administration was able to do. And I think really one of the things that I will say that happens because of that administration, or in part because of it, you look at Obama in 2008, 69 million votes to 59 million from McCain, modern-day Democratic landslide, 31 states, including Indiana, exclamation point, question mark, Indiana. He loses Missouri. He wins North Carolina, Florida. People were ready for the kind of New Deal, Eisenhower, Reagan, landslide, consensus. And he didn't do more. One of the ways in which Donald Trump was able to really maximize white racial grievance was the fact that the Obama administration and the call for hope and change, not only did it not hold large financial institutions accountable, because I think when you think about the Credit Protection Financial Bureau, that's great and that's new regulations, but they still didn't reinstitutionalize Glass-Steagall. So the banks could still do new versions of the mortgage security crisis, and they didn't help the little woman or man out there who had the mortgage crisis. So they let the banks just do whatever they wanted, right? So there were white voters who were ready for Obama to be that new dealer. How come he doesn't win Indiana again in 2012? I'm not going to say Indiana, they're just a bunch of racists. He didn't come through. He didn't deliver. So we've got to be honest, too, and say these were mistakes and shortcomings and failures. And you're not trying to personally smear the president, but you're saying that There was a way in which he really could have been the progressive Reagan and the progressive Eisenhower, right? And away from Republican obstructionism, you're saying in 2009, even before the midterms, the vision he announces is not capacious enough. That's on him. And we all elected a leader in 2008 who promised us the most capacious vision in American history. That's why he was elected. And he was elected... Sean, not by a small margin, but by a large margin, right? Including 43% of white voters. So there were white voters willing to turn the other page and waiting for this economic justice and transformation that was promised and never delivered, right? So these are all things that I hold Obama accountable for, and we should, our elected officials, we have to be critical enough and admire somebody enough to be critical. So when I think about Obama versus BLM, I think what's striking about BLM is that in certain ways, they're more hopeful about American democracy and the future of the country than the president was. And I'd love to, you know, we just like we're talking now, I love Obama. I'd love to get a conversation with him, love Michelle Obama. Let's hang out, right? But these are just truths.
1: <laughs> president Obama, if you're listening, you're welcome to come on the show at any time and and defend yourself. It's not even a defense. I I love Obama. All right, let's zoom out just a little bit because I do, you're talking about BLM and the role of BLM is important in the book in terms of, of trying to put the moment in a proper historical context. And obviously you characterize this era as the third reconstruction and the beginning of which was marked by Obama's election. And I think it's pretty obvious why it would make sense to place the events of the last... 10 or 15 years on a continuum with this broader story of trying to achieve more racial equality in this country. But without any capstone reform event like a Voting Rights Act, is it maybe hyperbolic to cast this moment, the BLM moment, the movement rather, the protest of 2020, to cast that along the same lines as, say, the civil rights era?
2: Is it too soon to say it's that momentous? No, I don't think so. And here's why. I think what people haven't connected is that the Black Lives Matter movement upsurge actually propels Joseph Biden and Kamala Harris into the White House. And so I don't stop the third Reconstruction as January 6th. And I love this question. When people say... What did they accomplish? It's not just in 2020 where some people were doing some reallocation of policing budgets and progressive DAs and things like that. That's some of it. But every single thing that the Biden-Harris administration has done is because of the BLM insurgency and the coalition that was created around it, 81 million to 74 million. So when you think about the pandemic bill, when you think about student loan reform, when you think about the climate bill that is in the Inflation Reduction Act and the 10-year infrastructure bill, in the last two years, we've seen the largest federal spending really in generations, when we think about proportionally, for good centered around equity in American history that we would not have seen if not for the movement for Black lives that then converged with movements like March for Our Lives, Women's March, LGBTQIA. So it was a multiracial reconstructionist movement that got Biden-Harris and the first Black woman as vice president into the White House. And the policy achievements were spearheaded by the Black Lives Matter movement, even as certain policy aspirations, like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, the For the People Act, the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act, have not been passed. So when you look at the last two years, Sean, the legislation, and in fact, the Biden-Harris administration has just released a big tweet about like all that Biden has done, right? That's BLM. That's a bigger policy legacy than the Black Power movement, right? Because as Black Power starts cresting, we get Nixon. (laughs) This is the first time that you have a social movement since the civil rights movement that as it's cresting, you actually get, maybe it's just for one term, but an administration that is actually more attuned to social justice than the administration of the first Black president, right? What Biden and Harris have done, just policy-wise in two years, is momentous in terms of investing in aspects of abolition democracy.
1: And then what happens, you know, what if we get DeSantis in 24, and, and how much of this gets unraveled, and then—
2: well, it's not all executive orders, Yeah, because some of this is legislation. Even as, again, and I think the juxtapositions of the third reconstruction are where you've got this very conservative Supreme Court, you've got voter suppression, but you also have Justice Katanji and the first Black woman on the Supreme Court. You've got a push-pull yeah. that's happening in all these different juxtapositions, but I think the policy legacy is there already.
1: Yeah, you make a good case. I, and maybe it's just something I need to think more about. I still find it just hard to gauge the significance of all of this right now, because I know it's created an immense amount of political energy and even some policy victories. And there's a lot of protest, and corporate America is proudly boasting about its support for <laughs> racial justice, and that's good and well, but that kind of support is easy. Support for specific, controversial, concrete change is much harder. And who knows what remains, what will come of all this, in addition to what's already come. For me at this moment, it just, boy, you know, the life-altering legislative achievements of the First and Second Reconstruction, ending slavery, ending Jim Crow, they seem so much more momentous and enduring by comparison, but maybe I really am selling this moment
2: short. Well, I think when we think about Jim Crow, Jim Crow is still with us. And I think Michelle Alexander's notion of a new Jim Crow. Yeah, the prison is very capacious and very important. And I also think that when you think about the second Reconstruction, just to show us that democracy is not linear, we no longer have the voting rights that we did from 1965 to 2013. So that turned out to be ephemeral too until we get that restored policy-wise. That's what's so interesting, including the Reconstruction constitutional amendments, these policies wax and wane. And that's why to safeguard democracy is a constant struggle. So it can even be a constitutional amendment. By 1883 in the civil rights cases, the Supreme Court really basically implicitly strikes down both the 1875 Civil Rights Act, but also the aspects of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Absolutely they do. Because if those amendments have meaning and the Equal Protection Clause has meaning, there's no way to actually institutionalize racial segregation. The court abrogates that for 70 years. And even during the second Reconstruction, the court provides in the follow-up decision to Brown in 1955, all deliberate speed, and it provides an out for Southern states to desegregate. And so our public schools are more segregated than ever in the United States, right? The high point of racial desegregation in public schools, according to Gary Orfield, is late 80s And it's 2022, so that's 35 years ago. So there's a 20-year period of desegregation with the Charlotte-Mecklenburg School District in 1969 all the way up to 1988. And basically with the parents versus school decision by John Roberts in 2007 or 2009, that basically ends. He says the way to stop racial discrimination is to stop racial discrimination. So he's speaking in tautologies while dismantling the second Reconstruction. So we need absolutely more progressive policies, more policies that center racial justice. But Biden has had more black women in his administration in high post than any president in American history. He signed more executive orders centering equity across all branches of the federal government, including the Department of Agriculture and them trying to do reparations for what happened to black farmers. So there's a lot here if you look. And again, it's my job to look. So you can say, hey, you're going to take your time and do... This is what I do on a daily. I would tell you if I felt, hey, the Biden administration has been terrible here, even though BLM helped get elected. Don't know if they're going to be reelected, but this is one of the most pro-Black administrations in American history. You'd have to go back to Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. And even then... One of the things Biden's trying to do is deconstruct aspects of the prison-industrial complex that really owes its founding to some of the federal monies that happened after the omnibus crime bill of 1968, which is one of the understudied aspects of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society.
1: So how does January 6th fit into Joseph's historical narrative? That's what I'll ask him after one last quick break. Support for the Gray Area comes from Greenlight, If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. How does January 6th fit into your historical narrative? I mean, in the book, you compare it to the Wilmington coup in 1898, which I suspect a lot of people don't know very much about. <laughs> no. I mean, is it possible that the storming of the Capitol that day was
2: potentially the end of the Third Reconstruction? No, I think it's one of the high points of backlash in the Third Reconstruction. I think what's so interesting, and we've started our conversation, Sean, talking about narratives and stories we tell. And I think one of the reasons why January 6th happened is that in 2020, Reconstructionists absolutely not only won the narrative war against Redemptionists, they positively dominated the narrative war against Redemptionists. We saw Confederate flags and monuments tumbling down. The NFL and NASCAR talking about Black Lives Matter. We saw corporate America pledging hundreds of millions of dollars for racial equity and Black citizenship and dignity for the first time in American history. We truly had a bigger national conversation and a policy impact on race and democracy in 2020 than we ever had. 25 million people out in the streets. We saw that movement lead to an administration that absolutely would not have been elected if not for the movement? Donald Trump would have been reelected president of the United States if not for the Black Lives Matter movement and the intersectional coalitions that it creates on the fly with AAPI, with Latinx, with queer folks, with women. Would not have happened. So when you think about two things, Sean, the big lie... And January 6th, Those are responses. And that happened during Reconstruction as well. And it happened during the second Reconstruction as well. Those are responses. The popularity of the 1619 Project, my friend Ibram Kendi, who I've known for 15 years, one of my former mentees, made good. His book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, sells over 2 million copies. Robin DiAngelo, White Fragility. There's a whole spectrum out there where Reconstructionists are absolutely winning the narrative war. Initially, conservatives don't know what to do. They start a 1776 project that doesn't take off. The things that take off are the big lie, the January 6th white supremacist riot, and the CRT hoax. A blogger says, let's start calling everything critical race theory, which is something that's taught at maybe a dozen or two dozen law schools that basically just says that race is a constitutive element of law and lawmaking in the United States and say that any kind of talk of racial injustice or equity or diversity or inclusion is critical race theory and let's ban it, right? That is a backlash to a group of folks and a sentiment that's actually winning. Those are some of the things that we don't talk about, especially people on the left. They don't ever want to talk about victories and successes. (laughs) They want to talk about, you know, it's a politics of retrenchment and we're under assault. So... January 6th is not so much as an end as another stage in that third Reconstruction, where you go, okay, Obama and America is a place where all things are possible. Well, we're going to say he's not a citizen, tea party, birther, right? Obama visits a federal prison, commemorates Selma, has two Black attorneys generals, starts speaking about mass incarceration by 2015. We're going to talk about MAGA, lock her up and we elect Donald Trump. We come back, 2020, Reconstructionists, talk about the racial disparities of the pandemic, largest social protest movement in American history, defeat an incumbent president. It's very hard to defeat incumbent president. In the last 50 years of American history, three incumbents have lost, Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush, and Donald Trump. It is exceedingly hard to beat an incumbent. Most Presidents get reelected. Yeah. And so when you think about January 6th, January 6th is the reaction, the backlash to everything that was occurring the previous 12 years, but especially in 2020. See, that's the thing, though. That's the reaction part, right?
1: Like, I don't know what role BLM and that movement played in getting Biden elected. I don't know how much it helped or hurt or what pushed it over the top in the end. I, who knows? I'm more confident that. It got fed into this pre-existing culture war, and it has produced this backlash that may end up sending an equally extreme, but probably more competent administration into power in 2024. And if something like that ends up happening, then you step back and go, well, how does it all wash out in the end? What does the victory look like then?
2: Well, I think the victories are always contingent, and I think it's so interesting because One of my colleagues wrote an op-ed about hoping the election of 2022 is like 1866. And when you look at 1866, the midterms there and the midterms in 1870 and 1874, we were going through the same things. We had one complete party, it was then the Democratic Party, that was this authoritarian, neo-fascist, Confederate party. And people were wondering, can we do something to hold these people back from sort of taking over again? So these unhappy patterns, Sean, are part of our history. So the victories are always contingent, I argue, until we're able to tell ourselves a more complete and holistic story about democracy. That's the thing. Like I understand why people, including Obama, want civic nationalism and they want a story that unifies us. I want that too. I just think the story they're telling to try to unify us isn't the right story because it doesn't confront enough of our shortcomings so that In confronting those shortcomings, we actually fix them, and we're no longer going to be perpetually vulnerable to the Donald Trumps and the MAGAs and the people who want to destroy. Because Reconstruction is about what? Rebuilding and reimagining American democracy for everyone, for all of us, including those who are dissidents— as well as those who want some kind of consensus, right? So when I look at January 6th, I think it's less of an end than a very important pivot point in the way in which the forces of redemption are reconsolidating their power, especially their narrative power. Critical race theory is an interesting story because there's a narrative power to saying, hey, they're the racist and they're constantly bringing up race and they're doing these bad things. We have to talk about being multiracial supporters of democracy, supporters of justice and equity for all people, and supporters of citizenship and dignity for all people. But yes, Black people, because by denying Black people citizenship and dignity, that's how we've gotten into the mess and the morass we're in, right? So the problem, I would say, the critique for me of Obama and people who want to paper over our differences is that they still erupt into violence and discrimination and bias and racism. So, what we have to do is not paper over those differences, but craft a story about the people who've searched ceaselessly for freedom beyond limits, for freedom beyond race and gender and class but not beyond in some kind of colorblind way that makes us evaded. It's just saying that those are no longer detriments to us having access to dignity and citizenship.
1: Someone listened to this conversation in a vacuum. They might think that you're pessimistic, but I don't think you are. That's not my impression of the book. I think you're pretty clear about that at, at the end. But I wonder if you think, and I, and I know there's a kind of a silly childlike way of asking this question, but I really ask it earnestly. Do you think we'll ever be able to move beyond race in this country? Do you ever think we can reach some place where it's a non-issue? I mean, I'd like to believe that we can, but I don't want to be naive. And I I think I know too much political history to believe that, but I wonder what
2: you believe. No, I think we can achieve a different country. Absolutely. I think that the reason why race is the divider and the demarcating line in the way it is is that we've institutionalized that politically, economically, culturally for centuries and centuries. So I think that can we behave in different ways where race is not everything? Yes, we can. Absolutely we can. Is it going to be a struggle? Yes. That's why we have the Reconstruction Amendments. That's why we've had different legal challenges and legislative challenges. We've had different cultural milieus and movements for economic justice. And I think that the only way we're ever going to get to that point is by telling ourselves a different and new story. One, finding out about our history, and I think that's what I try to do in the third Reconstruction and these three periods of Reconstruction. But also... I loved what John F. Kennedy says on June 11th, 1963. He says there's a revolution happening in America. And he says,
1: Those who do nothing are inviting shame as well as violence. Those who act boldly are recognizing right
2: as well as reality. And that's really Kennedy's finest moment. It's the day after his American University speech and I think that it's a more important speech than the American University speech, even though most scholars differ from me, because he's talking about anti nuclear proliferation and all that stuff in that speech. But he's finally on board with Black citizenship and dignity. But there's a kind of optimism in Kennedy's speech that requires confrontation.
1: But are we to say to the world, and much more importantly to each other, that this is a land of the free, except for the Negroes? That we have no second-class citizens except negroes that we have no class or caste system no ghettos no master race except with respect to negroes
2: this is the president of the united states right and so that's our charge 60 years later it's still our charge right and fundamentally until we can grapple with that All the things we want, like climate change, all the nice things that we want, equal opportunity and equity, good schooling, those things will not occur until we grapple with this. And that's why I said, fundamentally, we have to tell ourselves a different story and we have to move beyond the lost cause. We will never be an exceptional nation when our exceptionalism is rooted in racial slavery and a lost cause that lies about the rootedness of slavery and race to its vision of exceptionalism. So we just have to be honest with each other, but that doesn't mean we can't be proud to be American, and it doesn't mean we can't build a consensus narrative about what it means to be American.
1: Look, our multiracial democracy will never be perfect. No political order can be that. The question is always, what are we aspiring to? And Maybe this is just a, you know, the existentialist in me, but my inclination is to say that the struggle is really the point that no matter what we achieve, every victory is provisional, every victory is contingent, as you were saying. There's no end point. There's no final victory. There's just a perpetual fight for progress and a perpetual fight to hold the ground that's been won, and that's it. That's, that's
2: our situation. You know, Sean, I would say that the fight is to build the beloved community that Martin Luther King Jr. talked about, free of racial discrimination, free of economic inequality, free of violence domestically and globally. So it has to be a very, very hopeful vision, because we all wake up in the morning with hope, right? I try. The (laughs) only reason you're up doing this interview, it's not because you're saying, man, it's going to be a terrible day. And that's what we want for our children our family, our friends. So we have to think that we can be a beloved community nationally. And I think that there are archipelagos of fugitive democracy and beloved communities all around us. It's about congealing that nationally. I think the power and the positivity of Obama in 2008 was that we did feel like a beloved community for a time. It really did. You could feel it. I was at those rallies. I was there nationally. Latinx, white, API people were talking to each other. People developed friendships and relationships around that. It was a social movement that got Obama in, right? And so we know we can do it because we've had snapshots of it. It's about the consistency and the resiliency to maintain and institutionalize it. Well, I
1: get to wake up and have conversations like this for a living, and that's, <laughs> that's enough for me. The book is The Third Reconstruction. I recommend it, check it out, people. Peniel, it is always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for coming in.
2: I really enjoyed it, Sean. Thank you.
1: Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drostuska is our editor. Patrick Boyd is our engineer. Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. So what'd you think of all that? Do you think Peniel's criticism of Obama is too harsh, too light? And what do you make of his broader argument about this era being comparable to the Civil Rights era or the original Reconstruction? I still don't quite know where I land on that. I think I need to wait and see. But I'm curious what you think. Drop us a line at at thegrayareaatvox.com. We're so pumped to finally bring this show to you. We hope you dug it. Please share it with all your friends and leave a review. That stuff really helps. Episodes drop Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.